Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I am Monish Rath here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C. I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, David Sarvati, uh, a very well-known partner in the field of occupational safety and health law uh, throughout the country, uh, who has uh, represented employers uh, in federal OSHA cases as well as state plan states in virtually every jurisdiction in the country over the years. David, thank you very much for joining me and welcome. Thanks, Manish. Uh, today's topic is uh, a really interesting one and one that I think uh, should generate a lot of interest among our participants. Well, I think that's right. What we're talking about today is a recent memorandum that came out of the Department of Justice and uh, it, it goes to the question of uh, the the relationship between the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, and the Department of Justice, uh, where regards enforcement of allegations of criminal violations. So with that said, what we're going to talk about is first understanding OSHA's criminal authority and give some background on its historical use of its criminal enforcement authorities uh, and state and local prosecution uh, and then we're going to talk about this memo, this Department of Justice memo, which came out within the past uh, six or seven months, and to the date, pretty much, uh, and and uh, and some of the implications, both for corporations, as well as for individual managers, supervisors, executives, and and as you know, David, uh, we've done this about two and a half, almost three years now. This OSHA 3030 program, uh, we always try and end up with practical application of new developments in the law. Uh, what employers can do. So we got a busy to uh, topic today, and so uh, let's get into it. Uh, the first thing I think we need to talk about is providing a basic understanding to our members of our OSHA 3030 community of what OSHA's authority is for and where it derives from for uh, engaging in criminal enforcement. Uh, really, the safety and health standards are a civil matter. They are a classic regulatory scheme. Right. That's right, Monish, and the enforcement in those situations uh, limits the penalties to monetary penalties. There's nothing associated with criminal uh, violations or uh, prison sentences, and it's only in a limited number of cases, as we see on the screen, that there is uh, a sort of criminal violation uh, possible with an OSHA uh, citation. And these derive from the statute itself. Uh, the willful violation that leads to a fatality uh, and there, in that context, willful means knowing uh, is a statutory authority for a misdemeanor crime uh, worth up to $10,000 and six months in prison. Uh, the advance, providing advance notice of a pending inspection, uh, falsification of documents, uh, or failure, deliberate uh, failure to maintain critical documents, and perjuring oneself before OSHA proceedings. Uh, OSHA, of course, is not the body that prosecutes these criminal uh, allegations, they, they refer the matter to the Department of Justice. Right, Marsh. And it's important to point out that all of the OSHA violations typically are considered, have a maximum of um, one-year prison sentence for an individual, and that means they're, they're misdemeanors under the code. The perjury uh, uh, violation at Title 18 of the United States Code is a felony violation and one that uh, people always need to keep in mind. It's the same kind of thing. The false statements that uh, captured Martha Stewart in her escapades in West Virginia. So, David, as you know, we see the criminal enforcement in the OSHA context on those four types of uh, criminal allegations 
happen relatively infrequently, but there are some notable examples, nevertheless, and and there's a, uh, quite a few of them over the 40 years of OSHA's history, but uh, we ought to talk about just a couple to give people a, a sense of the, of the process. Uh, in Atlantic State's Cast Iron Pipe Company, uh, there were a few, there were a series of different uh, and distinct uh, events where people had been uh, struck by and struck and killed by forklift, uh, rotating blade, etc. Uh, there, in addition to will, what, what was alleged to be willful criminal violations leading to fatalities, uh, there were other criminal violations alleged, like um, uh, either falsification of documents or perjury during the testimony process. Uh, and the court, the federal court, upheld prison sentences for the plant manager. One thing that's interesting is they've upheld a prison, upheld a prison sentence for the HR manager in charge of safety, uh, a fairly substantial sentence for the maintenance supervisor, as well as for the immediate line supervisor. Right. And, Monish, those those uh, penalties and sentences were related to the fact that these folks were involved in a conspiracy to keep OSHA from investigating and understanding what was going on. And we can see that there was a series of events, uh, violations of OSHA standards that led to the investigation. But in the end, it wasn't the OSHA statute violations that were the basis for these uh, penalties. It were was um, violation of other statutory requirements, including the false statements uh, statute. Yeah, I think that's right, and that's where really the Department of Justice seems to be uh, targeting as well with this most recent development. Another case that I think a lot of people remember, David, is the Port Arthur Chemical and Environmental Services uh, case. It only happened about three, four years ago, uh, and what happened was the the president deliberately and knowingly directed employees to falsify transportation documents and placarding uh, on shipments by truck that contained hydrogen sulfide uh, or, or materials that would have exposed employees to hydrogen sulfide. The allegation was that he failed to implement, uh, knowingly failed to implement engineering and expo uh, administrative controls that would have kept employees from being exposed. Uh, and without the placarding and the documentation, two employees, they got up on top of the truck, opened up the hatch, and the hydrogen sulfide exposure uh, killed, I think, both of them, if I recollect. That's, uh, that's what appears to be the case here. Again, this is a situation where there were violations of the OSHA standard, but in the end, the criminal prosecution turned on false statements that the president made and the efforts to conceal the uh, violations. Well, that's right. And it starts with the, the, the direction to be employed to falsify documentation as well as to eliminate the placarding. But then during the in, uh, investigation, uh, it was alleged that he falsified, made false statements. And so, so I think that's a really critical case. It's, it's got a lot of attention amongst us in the OSHA bar and uh, stands as an example of criminal enforcement. And I think, David, as you and I have uh, seen in a number of our cases that we've worked on together, State uh, and local criminal prosecution is always an issue that employers have to be mindful of. And, in fact, I think by numbers, they exceed the federal criminal enforcement cases arising out of OSHA investigations. And that's because, first of all, there's so many more state and local criminal laws. And, second of all, because the state and local uh, authorities have law enforcement right there that can, that can bring their prosecutorial uh, resources to bear with them, uh, and and as you know, half of the states are state planned states. I think, Monish, this slide illustrates the importance of keeping these 
criminal violations or criminal provisions in mind. It's not the federal OSHA criminal provisions that people really need to worry about. It's the state and local prosecutors. And example here, the Bumblebee case was uh, a situation where an employee died. The company was convicted of uh, willfully violating the, the safety rules. But in the end, the uh, again, the challenge there was that there, there wasn't a, an individual that could be named uh, for a significant violation. There's another one in California, San Francisco Fatality, involving a roofing company where the people fell off the roof. The, the company uh, management, I um, believe it was the president in that case, was uh, uh, prosecuted and convicted for a manslaughter for failing to provide the appropriate uh, uh, fall protection. The other two cases here, uh, or the other case here that we're mentioning, the New York uh, case uh, involving the task force is a case that uh, was prosecuted by Cyrus Vance III. Uh, the Harco Construction Company was convicted under the OSHA standard, but um, pending are two criminal uh, cases involving subcontractors and two individuals where we have criminal charges not related to the OSHA violation uh, uh, provisions in the OSHA statute itself, but these are violations of local law leading to uh, uh, serious uh, fatalities. And, and that's the pattern that we see, Monish. We see fatalities happening, a local prosecutor gets involved and uh, begins the prosecution, and where it's appropriate, they'll take uh, appropriate prosecutorial action. I want to mention one other thing about California, Monish. A number of years ago, California uh, uh, district attorneys and, and the California attorney general uh, organize themselves to have a, an attorney from the uh, district attorney's office investigate uh, fatalities that occur in the state of California. So uh, Los Angeles County, for example, always has or always had, they may, may not be doing it anymore, but they did at one point always have a lawyer from the district attorney's office accompanying the OSHA inspectors doing the investigation. And that's something people need to be aware of. Yeah, I think that's a critical point because there you have an example where the employer is unrepresented, but the OSHA inspector is represented during the inspection. I think that's a, um, a fantastic situation to find yourself in. Well, with that said, let's talk about this memo. So, so around December 17th of 2015, about seven months ago, the U.S. Department of Justice issued a memorandum uh, and it calls for cooperation and exchange of data between the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the U.S. Department of Justice, specifically its environmental crime section of its uh, Environment and Natural Resources Division. Uh, this is the group that has substantial experience with prosecuting criminal allegations with regard to uh, allegations of environmental crimes or crimes relating to statutes regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. And right. so so given that experience, uh, they've been the office that's been charged with, with this process of uh, developing closer cooperation with OSHA. Uh, historically, the Department of Justice justifies this approach, this closer cooperation, because historically, under the four instances that we discussed above for why OSHA would use its own statutory authority for criminal prosecution, there have only been really a handful of criminal prosecutions, uh, about an average of two a year. Since 1972, uh, 
the Ash Act was enacted in 1970. Since 1972, right. there have been about 400,000 fatalities and about 80 criminal prosecutions involving those 400,000 fatalities or other criminal uh, allegations like falsification or, or false testimony. Uh, that fraction is very, very small. Uh, in 2013, I understand that there were only three criminal prosecutions relating to the OSH Act itself. Uh, what are the reasons why there have been so few criminal enforcement uh, efforts going on over the past 40 years? Well, certainly one of the first things OSHA would point to is limited resources. Uh, the Department of Justice complains that the penalties, now we're talking about the criminal penalties, which are capped at 10,000, have not increased. And I think really, David, to me what's going on here is a difficulty that the agency would have in prosecuting a criminal uh, a criminal allegation. And, and maybe the element that's the chief challenge for them is the mens rea component. Right. Establishing a uh, criminal mind, uh, as they'd say in the antique uh, expression, or mens rea, is very difficult to establish when you're talking, after all, about regulatory standards and fairly complex regulatory standards that are developed in the abstract and need to be applied to each unique workplace. I think, Manish, the, the reason we haven't seen more prosecutions lies in part in the fact that in most cases, the person that they're trying to prosecute is not necessarily directly involved in the activity that's gone on that resulted in the fatality. They're, they're senior managers or owners of the corporations. Remember, the OSHA standard only applies to, or OSHA Act only applies to employers. The, the violations and penalties are, are for the employer, and unless the person that they're prosecuting is considered the employer, as in a sole proprietorship or a partner in an organization, uh, the chances of obtaining a conviction are pretty slim. And I think that this mens rea uh, notion is very important. I would say it would be the rare case, as reflected in the number of prosecutions, where there's evidence that the person that they're trying to prosecute actually had an intention knowing that whatever their action was, it was going to result in the, the death of an individual. And it's that level of mentality, I believe, that prosecutors look for before they decide whether to, to charge someone for, uh, with a crime. Uh, I think the, the other problem is we only have, as you, we saw in the, one of the first slides, a few types of violations that fit the definition of a federal crime. Most of the crimes, uh, definitions of crimes that we see in the context of an occupational safety and health violation are state-level uh, uh, state uh, criminal uh, provisions, and so you're not going to see federal prosecutors ordinarily take an interest in prosecuting and, and may not have jurisdiction to prosecute when it comes to a violation of a state law. So I think those those two things are really the key. Yes, the penalties have not increased, and there is some disincentive for a prosecutor to take on a misdemeanor case. But in fact, there have it has been done, as it's, we see up here, about 80 criminal prosecutions over the years. I, I don't recall offhand how many of those have been successful, but I would say it is not this 80 or 90 percent that we typically see in a, in a criminal prosecutor's uh, history. Yeah, a lot less, you're saying. Yes, yeah. I'd say a lot less. I think you're right. Uh, so you, you mentioned the four 
uh, statutory authorities that OSHA has for criminal enforcement, willful violations leading to fatality, advance notice of an inspection, falsification of documents, and perjury. And the Department of Justice says, you know, we, we can bring a few more charges than OSHA can, and that's one of the reasons why we want to implement this cooperation memo with OSHA. We can bring federal crimes like false statements, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, which for those of you who do white-collar criminal defense would understand that that's a really tricky area when you're talking about a, a regulatory investigation. Exactly. Because obviously you want to talk to witnesses to get your own understanding of what happened, and uh, it's very difficult to not run afoul of a investigator's belief that that was witness tampering. Uh, conspiracy, environmental crimes, uh, endangerment crimes. I'm, I'm a little bit less worried about the implications of this memo where regards endangerment crimes as I am things like obstruction of justice and witness tampering, and we can talk about that as we go. But the other thing the Department of Justice said is, look, not only can we bring more types of crimes against uh, a, a, an individual or a company or an executive or a manager or anyone at the company, but we can also increase the penalties because these are felonies, whereas, as David, you mentioned, the OSHA crimes are statutorily misdemeanors. Correct. So, so now the Department of Justice, under these crimes, can bring penalties up to 20 years in prison and fines much more significant than a $10,000 cap. I think, if I remember, Monish, the cap for most of the environmental crimes is something like half a million dollars for an individual. I want to make one point about the environmental crimes, though. A lot of the environmental statutes are what's known as strict liability statutes, meaning the necessity to show that the person intended to commit the act that resulted in the criminal violation is not a necessity in several environmental statutes. And it's a concern that has been raised by a number of different commentators over the last several years about the, the criminalization of uh, what basically is ordinary negligence or even inattention that uh, sometimes occurs in uh, everyday life. So uh, not only, as it says on, on the slide here, do they have some very significant authority to prosecute, they also have other deterrent tools that uh, create real disincentives uh, for uh, employers in, uh, try, in trying to stay on the right side of this uh, particular situation, the statutes. So, so David, the Department of Justice memo uh, talks about the, having the agencies pair up and exchange information in order to facilitate enforcement. The Department of Justice talks about more aggressive, aggressive enforcement. Uh, and finally, it talks about having OSHA send staff over to the Department of Justice Environmental Resources Division staff to train them up. They being already experienced on EPA-related statutes and regulations uh, would now want the same kind of training on OSHA standards. Uh, and that they'll continue looking for other federal statutes that they can allege criminal violations of in the context of an OSHA enforcement or investigation. Uh, so that's what let – me, let me go back and say that that, that that memo that I'm talking about dated December 17, 2015 – uh, we in the OSHA community might casually refer to as the Yates Memo, having been authored by uh, Sally Quinlan Yates, the, I believe her title is Assistant uh, Attorney General yes. for the Department of Justice. Uh, but outside of the world of OSHA, I believe there is such a world, uh, the, there's another memo called the Yates Memo, and it is dated a few months earlier, September 9th of 2015. That one, more conventionally referred to as the Yates Memo, is one where the Department of Justice said generally, we're not talking about OSHA, we're talking about all federal 
enforcement of crimes. They said, look, when we go to corporations for any kind of corporate criminal activity, we will also look vigorously for individual liability. We will go to specific employees at companies and expect their full cooperation in answering our questions. And when we ask them, who is the individual responsible for the corporation's uh, violation of this criminal statute, we expect them to identify the individuals and to identify all facts that give us uh, the evidence we need to prosecute a uh, criminal allegation against that individual. If the individual does not do so, who's being asked this question, they will not be eligible for cooperation credit. Uh, in other words, there's a threat that the person who doesn't give up all information about who else the DOJ can prosecute a crime against will themselves stand to see greater criminal liability. And I, and I think that there's a certain uh, a bit of uh, maybe the Salem witch problem with that approach, that a person is more likely to turn over uh, a name of an individual without regard to the truth of his allegation about his coworker, merely to obtain the cooperation credit. Uh, that's, the t that's the classical problem prosecutors have in trying to get informants and, and, uh, and other types of uh, individuals as witnesses. The, the real significance here, Monish, is twofold. Number one, uh, DOJ is going after not only the individuals but the corporations themselves. And as we can remember from the Arthur Anderson case, in some cases, prosecuting the corporation, even charging them, re, re, uh, producing an indictment, can essentially exterminate the corporation. So there's a lot of uh, uh, pressure on senior management and on the board of directors of corporations in a circumstance like this to make sure that they are cooperating to the extent they can with the Department of Justice, which may mean turning over facts about individuals who work for the company. That creates a real conflict of interest within the corporation for the individuals involved. On the one hand, you're seeking loyalty from the people that are working for you. On the other, you're being asked to basically turn them over to the Department of Justice when they may not, in fact, have committed a crime, but, in, but in, have only been involved in what appears to be on its face uh, con activity that concerns people. And I would say, Monish, that most of this concern from the Yates memo in the first uh, Yates memo in September uh, uh, derives, I think, from uh, prosecutions involving uh, Federal Corrupt Practices Act violations that would be overseas bribery and that sort of thing. We also have uh, prosecutions in Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, and now it's spilling over into other areas of regulatory activity. So I, I think this whole idea of DOJ becoming more active should put employers and especially employers' counsel on notice to be paying attention to these things and to be concerned when there are investigations going on of circumstances that could lead to criminal activity. Well, I think that's right. And I think the overall thrust here is that when you take the first Yates memo with the second Yates memo, it's very clear that the Department of Justice is not interested in criminal prosecutions against corporations only. They are interested in going after individuals where they believe real accountability can be achieved. And so I think that that is an incredibly important point for executives, for in-house counsel advising executives to be mindful of. These developments since September are ha happened rather quietly, and uh, except for the OSHA 3030 uh, today, I haven't seen a lot of discussion about the second Yates memo, and I think that that's really critical for in-house counsel to pay very careful attention to this going forward. Right. So with that said, uh, 
when you talk about the current enforcement trends uh, in light of the Department of Justice's initiative, and I, and I have to say that I think the Department of Justice's memo, the second Yates memo, is really what I'd call a restatement of the law because it's what the Department of Justice has been doing for 20 or 30 years. And I think that the, the message I take from this is not that they're going to do something new. Rather, they're going to pay more attention to doing more of it. David? I think that's probably right, Monish, although the, as we said earlier in regard to the uh, difficulty in, in pursuing these cases. I mean, one of the things it seems to me that's important about having DOJ prosecute these cases as opposed to OSHA is it brings, uh, say, a fresh set of eyes to each of these cases, and it gives uh, somebody who has a, a larger responsibility for uh, prosecuting uh, violations of the law to compare the behavior that's involved in, and make decisions about whether or not prosecution is justified. We see on this slide, though, Monish, that this has resulted in some additional cases already. We had the fatal fall. An owner of a roofing company received 10 months in prison for that violation. The Bear Iron and Steel Company pled guilty and is on five years probation with a maximum fine of 500K for their improper lockout tagout violations resulting in a fatality. And in contrast to the... Mine Safety and Health Administration, where uh, even providing advance notice of safety inspections can result in criminal prosecution. We haven't seen that kind of thing uh, in, the, in the OSHA arena. You know, David, you talk about the Mine Safety and Health Administration, and I think it uh, reveals, uh, it, it touches on a very interesting practical distinction between the two agencies on one of the key uh, criminal enforcement uh, options that OSHA has, which is uh, when it's a crime to provide advance notice of a pending OSHA inspection. Uh, in practice, that means that when the OSHA inspector is about to conduct an inspection, it must be unannounced. When they show up at the compound gate, let us say, uh, the gatehouse, he announces himself to the gatehouse attendant, and the gatehouse attendant may then notify the folks inside the company that the OSHA inspector is here. Uh, however, the Mine Safety and Health Administration, MSHA, uh, takes a very different practical approach where they say that if uh, somebody inside the company at the start of the investigation or even during the investigation notifies another person in the company that the MSHA inspector is there, that MSHA will hold that as a crime. And that has not been the practical experience in the case of OSHA. Uh, in other words, in, OSHA, in the case of OSHA inspections, we would have it that the OSHA inspectors announcement at the first place that they report, let's say a gatehouse or the reception desk, is itself the announcement that the inspection is now underway. Uh, but for MSHA, even when the inspection is underway in the middle of the inspection, one worker can't tell another. This is an important point. When you look at the big branch, uh, upper big branch mine explosion, uh, I think it was around 2010, uh, after that uh, MSHA went and conducted somewhere around 57 uh, enhanced inspections around the country. And in at least a couple of cases, they criminally prosecuted a miner who got on a cell phone and told another coworker elsewhere in the mine, hey, the MSHA inspector is here. And in other cases, when they saw people with cell phones and they were about to get on their cell phones, the MSHA inspector impounded the cell phones, which is a huge, huge point, when particularly you consider it as a point of distinction between MSHA and OSHA. Monish, I think we've got to move on here. We've got uh, running out of time here at the end of our day, and this is obviously a very uh, 
a complicated subject. It's gotten attention in Congress. We've got a House Judiciary Committee task force looking at federal criminal law and something called they're calling overcriminalization. Uh, the Regulatory Reporting Act of 2015. We're look, looking for Congress to take a closer look at this and determine whether or not these regulatory violations are appropriate for criminal uh, uh, prosecution. And of course, this is arising out of the concerns that each one of us has. Given the number of federal regulations, I don't know that I'm always in compliance with federal regulations. There, there are lots that I don't even know about. And uh, we can see from the social media poll, this is a fairly common experience that people have. So, Manish, what should employers do? Well, practically speaking, I think that this changes the complexion of an OSHA inspection, particularly where you think it's an inspection that could lead to a criminal investigation. It starts off as a civil investigation, and if you believe that it will evolve into a criminal investigation, I think the number one thing that anybody ought to do is consult with their counsel, their in-house office of in-house counsel or their office of general counsel or their outside counsel or both who are experienced with OSHA investigations. Uh, particularly, uh, this is true if the investigation deals with a fatality, if it deals with missing documents, if it deals with an allegation that there was advance notice provided of an inspection. Uh, and, and I think that counsel ought to be involved when you're dealing with setting up a protocol for how you talk to your own employees who could be witnesses. We've had, as you know, David, cases where when we talk to witnesses and let them know that, hey, listen, we need to carve out time from your duties because the OSHA compliance officer is going to maybe want to speak to you, uh, that the OSHA compliance officer got uh, extremely, took great exception to that and uh, believed that that was uh, inappropriate. I don't think so. But uh, but you do have to handle the communications with these staff very carefully and have to have clear protocol for that. Yeah, Manish, I think it's really important to emphasize here that the consultation with your lawyer should not start when the OSHA inspection starts. You really need to start by preparing people in advance for these kinds of things. We used to run a training class that lasted about a day for our uh, clients who requested it where we went in and sat down and talked about how to handle an OSHA inspection. And it changes when there is a serious accident. One of the questions we got here on our, from one of our participants is about the ability to invoke the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And, of course, that is available to an individual. But, again, on advice, you need to do these kinds of things on advice of counsel. And the other thing to remember is that in most situations, the corporate counsel doesn't necessarily represent the individual. The individual may, in fact, in some cases, need to have their own attorney to advise them on how to answer the questions and, and uh, responding to um, the, the government. So criminal investigations, the implications of a criminal investigation really changes the dynamic of an OSHA inspection. And one of the downsides that I see with OSHA's inspections and with, uh, in particular in cases where we have a prosecuting attorney involved in the inspection, they don't offer often uh, essentially read the Miranda rights, the, the uh, familiar statement about the right to remain silent and to have attorney present. They don't do that when they're talking to people the first time around. And our normal response in these circumstances uh, when we're confronted with the, the authority of, a pro, of the prosecutor or the government is to basically respond by trying to give the information as much information as you can. And while that's important, it's definitely important to make sure that we're telling the truth, that we're being candid, and that we're not 
trying to hide anything in the This is one of the trickiest things you've put your thumb on, is that they're going to not Mirandize and simply conduct a civil investigation and then use the evidence that materializes in the civil investigation for uh, criminal uh, investigation purposes. Uh, but in addition to the question that was asked by our uh, attendee about self-incrimination and the preservation of rights uh, against self-incrimination, there are also other areas like attorney-client privilege, trade secrets, that, that emphasize the need to answer questions very carefully, preferably with counsel. There may be conflict of interest problems that in-house counsel need to sort through as specific executives or managers may be investigated with criminal liability of their own and a lawyer being present for the company uh, there, there may be a conflict of interest or the need to give uh, a kind of Upjohn-like warning to employees as you speak with them or as they present themselves to government investigators. Uh, and, of course, the, the need to find these documents, make sure that they have been preserved at the instance that you know that an investigation is forthcoming. Uh, I think that's critical as well. Uh, All of this points to the fact that there needs to be some planning in advance and some plan uh, by people that are knowledgeable about handling these kinds of cases before you end up in the situation where you have an active investigation. I think that's right. Well, David, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful to all of you who have participated in uh, this OSHA 3030. Uh, the next one we'll we have scheduled for uh, Wednesday, July 20th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, in addition to the OSHA 3030 webinar, you can also catch the uh, OSHA 3030s on our website at khlaw dot com slash thirty thirty. All of our past thirty thirties are in there and can be played slide and audio. If you want to take it away from your desk and play it on the go, it is also available as a podcast. Uh, and we also share information about OSHA developments on our LinkedIn webpage, so you should uh, link in to us so you can follow in uh, on those updates as well. I'm thankful to you all, thankful to David, and until next month, stay safe.